comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Fixing and fixing and all his reindeers. Hello, welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we go through a year of cinema history every week, starting in 1895 and all the way up till now. Uh, I am uh, I am your host, Chris Ellie, and I'm here with Glenn Covell, the other host. <laughs> Got to mix it up every time. We'll we'll, fi- <laughs> we'll figure it out. Uh, I'm a projectionist, and he's a filmmaker, and we're both uh, all about uh, film history uh, and learning about film history. So we hope that you'll join us on this journey. Join us on this perilous journey. <laughs> there is peril there is peril that's right we're talking about doolittle this week <laughs> imagine if we just become like one of those bad movie podcasts uh what do you mean then... become one of those bad movie podcasts hey are you are you <laughs> slandering george Melies here are you saying that his films are subpar you're no. saying that i would i would never compare george Melies to doolittle <laughs> We 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 we'll we'll do a podcast next uh, where we watch uh, we watch a trip to the moon every day for a whole year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, this year is eighteen ninety eight. Uh, this is uh, only a couple years after the founding of cinema, and we're already seeing some some big developments. Um, Indeed, but I wouldn't even say it's Melie. It, we've been seeing a lot of Melies. Well, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, first off, we like to uh, bring us in with a little bit of context, uh, a little bit of understanding of the climate of the time. So, Glenn, would you read us the news? The news, 1898. New York City annexes Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island to become the greater city of New York. Jacques. Novelist Emile Zola pens an open letter to the President of the French Republic, alleging wrongful imprisonment of Alfred Dreyfus. Annie to the President. If war breaks out in Spain, I have 50 lady sharpshooters for your military. Twenty days later, the U.S. declares war on Spain. Massacre in Italy, as General Fiorenzo Bava Beccaris opens fire on thousands protesting against high food prices. Neon is discovered, soon to drape city streets across the globe. Great Britain's empire expands. A 99-year lease is crafted to allow them to control the island of Hong Kong. The United States follows suit, annexing the Hawaiian Islands. The soda, called Brad's Drink, is renamed to Pepsi-Cola. A town of black prosperity in Wilmington, North Carolina, has its black government overthrown by white supremacists in the only coup d'etat ever on American soil. That's that's a that's a sad one to end on. Yes, it is. We considered cutting that out, but it's kind of historically important sentence. It's kind uh, of one of the more interesting historical events of the year, despite how awful it is. Yes, yeah, um, and how American it is. Indeed. Which... <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that uh, we left out of the news summary, which was a pretty big thing uh, that happened this year was the launch of the HMS Albion. Uh, ah, indeed. And uh, normally it would just be a, a sort of 
relatively simple ship launch. It's uh, it was a, a military ship that was being launched on the Thames uh, in uh, in London in December eighteen ninety six, but eighteen ninety eight. Oh, sorry, eighteen ninety eight. Uh, that is the year that this is. <laughs> well, it was eighteen ninety eight, so a large crowd gathered. Uh, to watch it launch because the only thing to do back in those days was to watch ships go into the go into the river. Ah, yes, and wave your hats at them. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, maybe I don't know if it's for the first time, but it's notable in that there were several people filming it with motion picture cameras. Yep, which was a new thing. Um, but the ship launch didn't go great. No. Uh, it created a, a, a wave as it hit the water, which hit a uh, one of the docks along the Thames, um, which was mostly uh, it was mostly women and children standing on it, and the the dock collapsed. And I think how many people? Thirty four. Thirty four people drowned. Thirty four yeah. people drowned. Spectators. They were just Indeed. they were just there watching. But also notable is that there are two surviving uh, films. Of the event, not of the dock collapsing, but um, of the ship launch and the sort of uh, ensuing chaos. Yeah, I actually found a third. Um, oh, really? On the, like the AP's YouTube channel, but oh uh, wow, yeah, it was less. So it was less notable than the other two, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, the uh, I guess one of them is kind of the more straightforward, and that it is filmed from across the river, kind of high up, probably on a rooftop. And it, it's just this massive military ship going to the Thames. And it yeah. kind of looks too big for the water it's going into. Yeah. The, I mean, so uh, when I was searching for this film that we're about to talk about, that was the first one that I saw was this kind of other one that's a little less notable. That's just a mm-hmm. far off shot of this enormous ship going going into the water. And I didn't really think much of it because I didn't know about the disaster when I when I first watched it. Because uh, what's that big splash, that big wave is being hidden on the other side of the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of what I was thinking was like, dang, this is like a huge ship, you know? Yeah. Um, dang, what a huge ship. Dang, a huge ship. Um, but there was another one. There was, an, uh, there was another uh, uh, film shot by Robert W. Paul um, that was a bit more... A bit more in person, a bit more verite, yeah. Almost, it's astoundingly verite, <laughs> I guess. Well, yeah, um, it's very. Um, it feels very modern and feels very kind of. Uh, I don't know, just grounded and kind of. It has none of the the staginess that we're used to seeing from all these other early films. Yeah, yeah. There. Well, so it's th- this film is notable for a couple reasons. One is that. Uh, uh, it feels extremely modern. It's on the ground. It's it's uh, it's it's not super far away. It's it's kind of all of the action is happening with an audience for or the spectator foreground in it, and uh, there there can't and and another hugely notable thing is that there are multiple shots in yeah. this uh, in this film. Um, there's a sh- there are shots that are on boats with the camera rocking back and forth, which I think is the first time that we've seen that kind of thing. The, the Venice shots were very smooth, mm-hmm. um, and th- they almost have the feel of handheld shots, even though I 
imagine they're not. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're on on some sort of support. Um, but since about half of them, I think, are on the boat, they have a very kind of uh, a much shakier kind of handheld feeling to them. Yeah, which really sells the disaster of it what's does. happening. It feels it feels very chaotic. Um, and also helping them helping that is think things are a lot closer to the lens than they are typically of of other films from this time where normally you see sort of a, a scene that's been sort of set up or established or or there's sort of people walking past the camera sometimes but this is like um there's a woman in, in a boat who is i'm not sure exactly how far from the lens she is but she's pretty close i mean it, it's a kind of a medium close-up um and then there's shots kind of looking through uh, a crowd at the at the ship um, with the crowd kind of muddying up the foreground. And you can kind mm-hmm. of see the ship uh, in the background. Um, and yeah, it just it feels very uh, it feels much more like what we think of as a kind of like documentary footage or newsreel footage. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if it weren't if it were less damaged and somebody told me that it came from the 1950s i would believe them yeah um they they he doesn't actually get the disaster on film um but but it has enough con with with the context you can kind of see the people i mean there are people that i think the last shot of it is this kind of um guy in a bowler hat and a big mustache like directing people each way just trying to like he don't it looks really desperate like it's some of the more human stuff that we've seen on film so far um he's trying to direct people in various ways and trying to get its handle on the situation it's uh it's it's, it's amazing i mean (laughs) yeah it's it's really it's really good (laughs) um yeah it's definitely one of the more kind of striking um just records of history that i think we've seen Mm -hmm. that isn't just kind of people on the street or um sort of going going about their job this is like an actual event that happened that just kind of happened to be uh caught at least partially on film yeah um so highly recommend you all watch that oh one thing that i should mention that i forgot to mention in the beginning uh, which was the thing that i was struggling to remember and stumbling <laughs> um is that we now have a youtube playlist on our youtube channel of every film that is discussed in the podcast um and uh because they're all copyright free at this moment. I don't know what we'll do after the twenties, really. Uh, but because they're all copyright free, you can watch them all on YouTube um, and have at it. You know, it'll only take a few minutes for you to watch everything, um, and uh, you can. Ev- they're silent, so you could even listen to us while you're watching them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Um, another thing I want to say about the the launch of the HMS Albion, um, this. Uh, this documentary film is that even though it has multiple shots in it, I don't know if they technically count as edits because I'm not sure if they were done after the fact. I don't know, but I get the sense that the the different shots were created through starting and stopping the camera at different places. Uh huh. I'm guessing that Robert W. Paul would set the camera down 
roll some film, stop the camera, move the camera to another place onto a boat, start it again, thus creating multiple shots within a single roll of film. Oh, huh. I see. So I don't so know that. You're saying that like it doesn't seem like the film was physically cut to create an edit. I wouldn't guess so. Hmm. But I don't know. It's very possible that is how it was done. Yeah. I mean, regardless, it shows a, a kind of mind for uh, some something that I've been thinking about lately, uh, watching all of these things that are just uh, set on tableaus with, with no cuts, is mm. that people are going through a lot of effort to put a lot of action in one frame just because they're not even thinking of cutting, you know? Yeah. Um, it's it's not entering into their mind. I mean, it speaks to maybe the idea of a time editing cut to be s- such a, a a new concept, an unthinkable thing, you know? That people are really, they're designing their stages so that all of the action can happen in one frame rather than actually cutting the camera. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, intentional, highly intentional or not, uh, the the different the different edits in this it's it's um i guess i i don't think this is like a really film term but i think a lot of uh the book understanding comics um where uh there's a there's a part where he talks about different what you would call film cuts from like different uh different comic panels and one of them he categorizes as like an aspect to aspect cut um which is just kind of getting the sense of a scene through not, you know, not a, a shot, a shot of similar subjects or a shot of one thing, but a shot of different, different parts of a bigger um, environment to give you a sense of the different aspects of that environment. And that seems to be the mode that these shots are operating mm-hmm. in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. They're, I, you definitely don't get the sense that they are um, meant to sort of. You definitely get the sense that time has passed in between each each shot. Right. Um, you know, we're not seeing any anything like a person walking in a single direction and cutting to a different angle of the same people walking, or they're they're very different sort of individual looks at this this larger event yeah it's it's a i mean i guess you could call it a naive understanding of cutting um uh where it's it's just i mean like you're saying it's almost like filming a couple of different lumiere style actualities um but then just doing multiple ones within the same day at the same place Mm -hmm. and then putting them together in one it Um, it um it kind of reminded me a bit of of like home movies. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I guess this doesn't really happen anymore because most home movies are done on a phone. Um, but in in the olden times of the nineteen nineties, mm, they were shot right. on v- VHS tapes. Yeah, and when you watch them back, they would ju- they would just be cuts. Sometimes like covering decades. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> right, here, here, here we've got like a couple different shots of the Grand Canyon and then hard cut to 10 years later in the backyard. 
um, because that we just pulled the old VHS tape out of storage and started right. filming on it again. And that's wow. kind of um, there's there's no uh, you know jumps in time uh, like that here. Yeah, it's but probably it, only a couple hours at most. Um, but that is something it reminded me of was kind of like the the way that we're getting little sort of glimpses from different uh, times over the course of this longer um, of like, yeah, of probably a whole, a whole day or half a day. Mm -hmm. Man, you just sent my brain way back to uh, making stop motion videos with my, with my film, with my, not film, (laughs) but like home, home camera onto a tape. And I had no way of like taking a picture. And so every time I would just like, record and turn off the recording yeah. very as quickly as i could <laughs> yeah <laughs> to try and simulate some kind of picture taking process um anyway uh robert w paul who shot that uh i think earlier than this was already experimenting with cutting though which um which makes me see him as a pretty big innovator here yeah um, um there are also some films from james h white which we've mentioned briefly who also was uh he was an american i believe um working for the edison company doing actualities um kind of like and kind of documentary type things um and he had a couple from 1898 as well i think oh uh, i didn't see those also also of ships if i remember correctly um <laughs> it's it's wild how limited the subject matter of all these yeah. things are. again 1898 big year for ships they loved him back then um but they they're definitely less kind of elaborate than this they're mm-hmm. they're only i think two or three individual shots at most whereas i think this launch of the hms albion is like four or five yeah well so the other one that i was talking about um is probably the first narrative cut um in in cinema which is a, a a previous robert w paul film called come along do come uh, along do come or, along do i guess it's like yeah. do come along <laughs> but, um it has uh, an exclamation he, point in it yeah come along comma do um exclamation point exclamation Very sorry important. exclamation point yeah it is so it's the first what i read is it's the first film with more than one shot but the thing is that only the first shot still exists (laughs) (laughs) um there there are two frames of the second shot that are available but basically the idea is that it's like a man and a woman who are standing outside of an art exhibit and uh they are sitting at the bench for a while and eventually they go in the door uh, and then that's when the actual film ends and what happens inside that's conveyed in two shots, uh, or two, two frames, uh, but was previously in, in, in an actual edit, uh, between two completely distinct scenes is, uh, there is the man kind of gawking at a nude female sculpture and then the woman giving him a hard time for it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I found it a little funny that, like, the, fir- the, the this is the first movie to have an edit for narrative purposes, but the first shot, which is the one that we have, 
serves basically no purpose for the narrative because <laughs> like the whole the whole thing of it is supposed to be about that second scene um and literally the first scene is them, them just standing outside of the art exhibit you know? right it's it's the equivalent of like the car pulling up and people getting out which is in film school is the thing they, they tell you never to do which what is do just mean? just cut to them inside the building like don't ever have a shot of just like people in a car pulling up to a building and getting out and walking in because that serves no purpose like we get that they went there you don't need to see it. Oh, um, man. But a, a, Robert oh, w. w. Paul clearly didn't go to film school. <laughs> man, th- that, this is a bit of a digression, but uh, I saw A Night to Dismember, the Doris, Wh- the Doris Wishman movie uh, from the late uh, 70s, I, early 80s or something. I think you mean Doris Wishman Masterpiece. Oh, yeah, sorry. Dor- uh, Doris excuse Wishman. me. Excuse me. Masterpiece. I mean, yes, uh, it's it's a it's quite a movie that if I tried to go into the whole story of it, I'd, I'd talk for too long. But it's an amazing it's an amazing, strange, strange movie. Uh, but in the introduction for the screening that I went to, they were talking about Doris Wishman's style. And she was a director who really did not like watching movies. And so she watched basically no other people's movies. And she and, and so as a result of that developed basically her own cinematic language and that's something that you can see in a night to this member because she uh basically anytime someone's walking there uh, walking somewhere she felt the need to show their feet walking because (laughs) otherwise you wouldn't know that they're walking somewhere (laughs) this movie came out in the 80s (laughs) um and that kind of reminds me of or of this naive idea of how to set up edits that we're that we're seeing here yeah um that is a really funny example i i mostly thought of like movies that either i made as a child or that i had seen children make where yeah they don't really they have no greater understanding of sort of what film language is they just kind of understand like a thing can be on 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 screen and you can you can do things like make cuts and like um it's 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 very interesting to watch adults like professional adults fig- figure this stuff out because no one had done it before yeah yeah i mean this is uh th- this year is quite significant i think because like this literally is the first year where we're seeing the foundations of cinematic language yeah. um which you know is the ar- the argument goes that it's the edit is the basic, you know, frame or the basic uh, building block of cinematic language. And we had not seen that up until now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like, um, that might be the single most kind of significant breakthrough that we've seen so far. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and it's so low key the way that it's introduced here. Yeah. Um, and it, it is funny that this is like the oldest surviving kind of evidence of of any continuity editing and it's we only have half of it (laughs) (laughs) huh what would you like to go into next um i mean i think what you're talking about how like without edits sort of people are coming up with new ways or sort of thing trying to come up with ways of of telling bigger stories Mm -hmm. through these sort of like single shot uh framework that has been established and i think a really Another very significant movie from this year, and one yeah. that 
I think is a great example of that idea of sort of showing different things without cuts is, of course, George Albert Smith's Santa Claus. Classic. A, yeah. a modern classic. The very first Santa Claus movie, the very first Christmas movie. Yeah. Um, and had a lot of technical innovations as well. Um, it is... I mean, we had talked about how it's it's funny how uh, a lot of Melier stuff has like Halloween imagery, and how <laughs> how similar moving that on is. to a new holiday. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. But it, I think it's it is funny that like with all of the, you know, we're seeing mostly kind of eighteen nineties Europe uh, in these films, and how kind of different it it seems from the the modern. You know, the, the dress is different. The sort of, like, society functions differently. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Claus is still just Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Like, this movie has Santa Claus wearing the iconic Santa Claus garb. It has him going down a chimney. It has him placing things in stockings. Yeah. Um, and it, he carries a tree down the chimney, which is weird, but... <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, it seems pretty pretty contemporary in yeah. terms of our the depiction of Santa. There's there's no kind of truly bizarre like you know he doesn't take, you know he doesn't beat the children. He doesn't, uh, you know he isn't some sort of weird elf creature. Um, yeah, you know, although we'll have to we'll have to figure out the first Yule Lads movie for yeah. the weird the weird <laughs> Christmas stuff. Uh, do you want to describe a bit more about the way this movie looks? Um, I mean, the the most notable thing, other than it being the first depiction of Santa Claus on film, is the way it uses uh, double exposure, which mm-hmm. is not something we've really seen much of before this. There was, I think, one other instance in 1898 that I noticed of double exposure, but um, I think this is the this first one. Have, I, yeah, I think this might have been the first, though. Um, and so it, it's... And it's it's done in a very interesting way, which is we we see a sort of uh, a scene, uh, a tableau of um, of children being put to bed on Christmas Eve, um, as you know, as they do. Um, and then, rather than sort of like cutting outside or 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 moving the camera, we see a kind of elliptical uh, image emerge to the side of the. One, on one side of the screen um so the the kids in their bed are still visible but then on the other side of the screen this this uh, ellipsis opens up and shows us uh the roof um and we see santa land on the roof i think maybe he just crawls on the roof i don't really remember i don't remember um and then goes down the chimney and then the ellipsis kind of closes again and he comes out the chimney um and does and, the Santa stuff. Yeah, you know, puts the gifts in their in their socks. Um and it I'm sure there was I mean, it was filmed with double exposure, so it was two separate shots. They were filmed at different times. But Right, but, um, but then they were edited into one shot. Yeah. Um they were combined into a single shot uh with no hard cuts. Um Well, there was actually one hard cut. Um, because I thought this was really interesting. Um, the scene starts off in the bedroom with the, the lights on and you're seeing the entire set of the bedroom. And then when the, the nanny or whoever, uh, 
switches off the lights, the entire it, they do like a Melies style jump cut, and then the 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 room the the bedroom set is taken away and it's replaced with a completely black background to kind of simulate the lights being turned off. But it also allows like a black plate to right uh, be for the be on the background for the uh, uh, the double exposure to be put on, which I thought was a really neat trick. Uh, it, it kind of creates three separate scenes within one, like mm-hmm. the pre the pre lights turning out, the post lights turning out, um, and the the rooftop scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is an interesting point that there is a cut, but it is not the shot doesn't change. It only the lights change. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's like. It's early enough that I I don't think that uh, filmmakers were really thinking in the terms of oh we need to show Santa being on the rooftop let's let's cut to it. It was like well how can we we can film this separately but then we got to you know kind of composite it in <laughs> right. so it's all one single uh, frame the whole time. Um, That's wild that they thought first of. Comp- going through all the effort of compositing something into another scene before they thought of actually just cutting to that thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it's very cool. And I think it, um, you know, it allows you to see both Santa on the roof and the kids in bed at the same time, which is interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. I saw somewhere on Wikipedia or Letterboxd that it was, if not the first example, but an, an early example of kind of parallel action happening. Yes, um, yeah, because as the kids are sleeping, you're seeing Santa on the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, the the forebearer to twenty four. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is it is kind of like a little bit of a uh, of a split screen. Um, yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. I, I guess you could consider it that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we could uh, talk about the other film from this year that did a multiple exposure, some multiple exposure trickery, Mm. and definitely much more trickery since this one's a trick film, Yeah, uh, is The Four Troublesome Heads by Georges Méliès. And this is one of the Méliès movies uh, that I had actually seen before. Um, uh, I saw it in some film class somewhere, uh, but... Uh, it's it's another one of his kind of um, film augmented magic trick uh, uh, events uh, pictures, um, and the the way that it works, it's Melies himself. He's dressed up in all of his magician's garb. He walks up to the camera. There's there's two tables uh, uh, beside him, and he's in the center. And then there's a black background behind them. And he walks up in, in between the two tables, and he's performing for the camera. And he grabs his head and pulls his head off. Um, and oh, oh. gasp! <laughs> he pulls his head off, and then he's—it's a headless body holding George Melier's head. He puts it down on one of the tables, and then magics another head back onto his head. Uh, and then he pulls off a second head. And then a third head, and puts them on the on the on the other tables, and the entire time the heads are kind of bobbing around and making gestures and 
you know, twiddling their mustaches. That's just, yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, they're all clearly living heads. Yeah. It's super cool. They're, they're only not living heads for the moment where the headless body is holding them. And then right. when he puts them down on the table, they become George Melies's heads again. Uh, and w- when, when there's the headless body, you can see a not perfectly done, like kind of black splotch over the body's head yeah Uh, so so basically what's happening here is um he shot an exposure for every every head that's sitting on a table and he shot a bunch of himself just kind of making faces and 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 whatnot uh and he just kept pretending to take his head off and place it down uh on the tables and each time he would pretend to take his head off, there would be a substitution splice where he would be holding a fake head, and then another one as he put the fake head back down, um, and that would remove it and replace it with one of the double exposure heads. It's very complicated, and it's really well done. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a moment that I really liked from it where you know for most of it the heads are just kind of mugging and he's just doing this operation of taking the heads off but then um there's there's a moment where he tries to get all of the heads to sing in unison and it is so it like i just kind of laughed at it it was really like a fun thing that they're they're like not properly doing it and he's kind of mad at the heads for not being <laughs> able to sing right it's it's really good um yeah it's really like it really shows off i think melier's skill as a, a stage performer um and it's it is very it is a very elaborate effect yeah um much more so than he's done before yeah it seems like most of what he's been doing so far like smoke effects and stage effects and and sub and substitution splices jump cuts Mm -hmm. uh but this is the first like real deal like special effect that he has done yeah yeah um and it is like you know, it's not something you can just do, like, on your phone. Right. Um, I, I mean, you could with, like, you know, post-production stuff. But in terms of, you, like, you can't just do this in camera uh, without a lot of work. Um, right. Yeah, this took, like, kind of chemical processes, unlike the other stuff that he was doing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, like, running the film back over itself and... You know, it's it's not just a double exposure; it's a triple or quadruple exposure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's multiple passes and multiple shots, all kind of composited together, and it uh, it's very impressive. Yeah, yeah. For for another one of his simple trick films, uh, it's it stands out amongst the rest. I, I've noticed I've <laughs> as I was watching even more of his more standard trick films, I was getting a little sick of the the gag of somebody tries to sit down and their chair disappears which happens so much yeah it is a very good joke but boy oh boy it's in every single melies movie pretty much like Um, he loves that he loves that joke so much (laughs) um there were a lot this week of uh a man trying to embrace a woman and the woman teleporting away i noticed um yeah he liked that that trick a lot too um and then also like people turning into we're just touching on a few of the other Melies films in right now but like people like turning into inanimate objects and then back 
again into humans. Um, Um, That's a, that's a big one. I think that's one that I had definitely kind of associated with Melies or with like early trick films of kind mm -hmm. of um, like putting a mannequin together in different parts, like getting a leg and an arm and sort of assembling them. And once they're all assembled, cutting to an actor staying in the same spot. Yeah. Um, like that happens in the adventures of William Tell. Right. Um, which is which the English is, title. Right. The original French title is William Tell and the clown, which I think is a better representation a better of the title. film. Yeah. Um, William Tell, for anyone who doesn't know, is a Swiss folk hero who's kind of best known for shooting the apple off a kid's head to show That's his That's all I know about him. Is there other stuff about him? There's, uh, there's uh, apparently lots of stories about William Tell. He's a, you know, uh, hmm, kind of a, a, a mythic character. <laughs> I don't, I haven't read any of them. Um, but uh, this one I found very amusing because it's about a clown who makes a sort of William Tell robot by yeah, assembling like golem or something like yeah, that. Yeah, William Tell golem <laughs> by assembling all the pieces together. And then, of course, it comes to life and immediately just thrashes the clown savagely. Um, you know what's, what's so fun about this one is that it, I, I, I didn't quite notice it until I was thinking about it afterward. But the way that it's set up is that the clown keeps looking away. And as the clown looks away the statue comes to life and then harasses him a little bit. And then he turns around and it freezes again, which is like such a classic gag, you know? Uh And I think that might be, this might be the first time you see, you see that, that, that gag. Yeah. Kind of. um, I mean, I'm, I'm curious if that is something that was born out of kind of the, the, the stage entertainment that Melies was a part of and was sort of sure. Yeah. um, Popular at the time. Um, if that was sort of a, an old kind of stage gag of kind of letting the audience in on something that uh, the character doesn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a moment that made me laugh very much when uh, at the very end, after the, the William Tell golem has, has harassed the clown a few times, he just straight up picks the clown up and it, we get another substitution cut where then the clown is swapped out for a clown dummy. And William Tell just kind of throws him around the room um, <laughs> and, like, does a wrestling move on him. Like, he does, uh, I don't know what it's called, but he, like, jumps down with his, like, stomps on him um, and then runs out the door. A clown pile driver. Yeah. Um, this is a stretch, I'm sure, but I'm, I'm curious if you were to track the history of it, if this counts as, like, the first, like, robot revolt movie. <laughs> um or like something like i don't know it just it reminded me of a lot of um you know later stories about about robots turning on their masters um yeah i i wonder if this is if the idea is it's a robot or it's some magical creation but uh yeah well i know knows? i know from the movie hugo that Melies also built automatons um mm. which was sort of wind up robots um what a magical guy (laughs) yeah what a what a what a guy um one thing i thought was kind of interesting about just kind of going into um the other films that melies made this year right kind of at the start of it and then tying somewhat back into the news segment um he made a series of 
what were called reconstructed actualities, which were sort of like reenacted events from the news. Uh huh. Um, and he made a, um, I think three or four about the uh, the sinking of the USS Maine, which was a battleship which was sunk in the in Cuba, which helped start the Spanish American War. Um, only the last one survives and is watchable, which is, uh, the French title translates to underwater tour of the main. I think in the U S it was called divers at work on the wreck of the main. Um, but it's very cool because it is, uh, set underwater Yeah. with these divers sort of going to the hull of a, uh, you know, a shipwreck. Um, but the way he did it was he just, put a um he had a set with actors in diving suits and you know a big shipwreck thing um but then he put a a fish tank in front of the camera (laughs) between the camera and the actors so there's all these fish swimming around in the shot it's really cool it's well done yeah and it's you know it's another example of just like the simplest dumbest way to do it to do a effect but it it works i mean it's it's cool (laughs) <laughs> um it's like yeah hey, they're underwater now um it does make me wonder what the other ones um look like i think this is probably would still end up being the coolest one um yeah it seems like he you know he he did some of these recreations that were pretty straightforward but then some so he definitely like was allowed allowed himself to get kind of fantastical with some of them like like putting a camera underwater hypothetically yeah I think, yeah, I think from some of the other ones that I watched, also from other filmmakers, like some, I think there were a couple Edison ones that were sort of like staged reenactments of of things that were in the news, um, most of which concerned the Spanish-American War. Um, they're pretty standard. They look like a lot of the other kind of like little staged scenes. Um, and so it is, it's very, it's very in character. For George Melies to be like, I'm gonna do one underwater. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know if I had really uh, read much about be- previous to this week uh, about how like there weren't really newsreels yet, but there were these kind of like staged newsreels um, yeah. to show people what was happening around the world. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like they weren't actually like. I don't think film was enough of an institution for them to really be doing any kind of current event stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But these are like, yeah, just dramatizations of things that you would have heard about in the news. Yeah. Maybe a few months ago or something. Um, but then I think also on Wikipedia, it stated that he had, he done, he Melies had done a number of these in a row and uh, maybe had gotten kind of tired of them because then immediately went back to doing kind of, much more traditional kind of uh um kind of like magic shows for the camera mm-hmm. um which i mean he'd been doing a lot of a lot of more kind of elaborate uh kind of narrative stuff the previous year whereas i think this year a lot of them were more a bit more uh staged and just um i don't know how to describe it but just more like magic shows than, right. than stuff like the films. four troublesome heads. Yeah. Um, yeah. With a couple exceptions. I mean, um, 
there's one which wasn't based on a specific painting. He'd done a couple in previous years that were based on paintings. Um, but this is sort of a common subject for paintings, which is the Greek myth of uh, Pygmalion and uh, uh, Galatia. I think that's how you say it. Um, which is just Pygmalion is a sculptor. He makes a sculpture that he falls in love with. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love, brings it to life. And in the myth, they like settle down and have a couple kids. In the <laughs> Mel- Mel- the Melies movie is just like the wacky comedy version of this, where you know the the statue comes to life, but then it's like teleporting around the room, and like he's chasing after her, and he can't. He like grabs grabs onto like her her midsection, and then her torso teleports away, and is across the room, so he has to go chase that. And by the end of it, she just turns back into a statue, and Pygmalion either faints or dies i can't quite tell what the intention was um, that, that makes me wish that i mean maybe he did but uh that uh Melies would make a uh a, a dramatization of orpheus and persephone <laughs> and eurydice. So, oh eurydice sorry yeah. uh, uh of, i get your uh, your similar sounding greek names correct <laughs> thank you thank you for correcting me there <laughs> um where where orpheus just looks back and then in a in a zany fashion Eurydice just disappears in a puff of smoke. Yeah, and yeah. then a little, little, little demon cackles and, <laughs> and pokes him. <laughs> you joke, but like that—that that movie might exist and is either lost or we might watch it next week. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> um, as far as I know, I don't think Melies ever did Orpheus and Eurydice, but I'd love to see it if he did. Yeah. Um, there's another a a big a big Melies movie from this year is. Uh, the English title is The Astronomer's Dream. The original French title is The Moon a Meter Away, which is... Uh, oh, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, is much longer and kind of more elaborate. I think it's the longest movie he's made since uh, House of the Devil. Yeah, they're both three minutes long. There was a uh, there was another one that is lost now that he made before this, uh, between the two, called The Laboratory mm. of Mephistopheles. And that one was also three minutes. Uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. There were a lot of Faust movies this year. Yeah. Like a lot. <laughs> I don't know why it was such a thing. People were just good. crazy for Faust in 1998. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Astronomer's Dream or Moon a Meter Away, is there's a lot going on. More than I care to really describe because it's, it's, <laughs> very, it's very fast-paced. A lot happens. There are a lot of, you know characters appearing and disappearing there the moon uh, appears as a big face inside yeah. this astronomer's workshop eats his telescope uh pu- <laughs> the moon pu- has these like giant like this giant like gnashing mouth and like he, you know he's looking at the moon and all of a sudden the moon just pops up like right close to him and then all then has his giant telescope in its mouth and it's just gnashing on his telescope yeah. it's this very malicious looking moon the moon yeah the moon pukes out a couple like uh i don't know troublesome gnomes um <laughs> uh the the astronomer gets eaten by the moon at one point um there's a lot of kind of um what's the right word i think sort of like mythological characters or sort of um, yeah, characters that would be at the time in sort of like theatrical circles would be kind of seen as a shorthand. Um, 
Yeah, there was this like moon lady who was some kind of mythological feature. There was, yeah, there was a moon figure, goddess. I um, I think a lot of this stuff would have been more sort of like culturally in the, I don't know, would have, you know, if you were watching it in France in 1898, you would have picked up on who these characters were just by their kind mm-hmm. of visuals. The ones that we still recognize are like Mesistopheles and um, I guess that's the only one. Um, yeah. I mean, this this movie was in olden times and they were just like, oh yeah, the Iliad, that was last week. Yeah, of course. All <laughs> olden times were several years. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the Elliot, uh, yeah. Uh, that just happened, right? Um, this movie was retitled to A Trip to the Moon when it came out in the U.S. Further confusing English titles for George Melier's movies. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, the American releases for all of his movies just screwed up all the titles. There were a few other ones. Um, yeah, using a couple other kind of like stock characters from from like pantomime uh, theater. Um, they all kind of blended together for me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that the astronomer's dream was pretty cool, but it it just seemed like another big Melies movie. I was more interested in the four trouble pr- troublesome heads, mm. um, because I thought that was really like neat and innovative. The astronomer's dream is a bit more of his funky uh, substitution cuts. Um, yeah, yeah, but it it does have a really cool looking moon in it yeah Um, the big moon face is very cool we're gonna see a lot of a lot more big moon faces from him uh there is one other thing that is just is not extremely notable uh but is a good segue film uh is that uh melies made a train movie um this year he made he made a a a, oh what phantom ride they're calling them Mm. uh which there were a ton of of phantom ride movies this year of just people placing a camera on a train and you watch it go um th- this one was this one's called panorama from the top of a moving train uh so unlike any of the other ones i've seen i'm not sure how unique it is but this one the other ones have been on the front or back of trains and this one is sitting on the top and you can see uh see the the train on the bottom of the frame and you, you gotta see some neat parisian uh late 19th century buildings um but you know it, it was melies making a lumiere um, yeah he kind of dipped his fingers into into every pie but since he's an overachiever he had to do one on top of the train yeah <laughs> um which so, yeah should we talk about the the lumiere brothers film i think from so this year? yeah we've been we've been sort of sleeping on the lumieres a little bit um because I don't know, they're they're not necessarily pushing everything. They're they're doing some neat ethnographic stuff, but not not nothing as funky as Melies. Um, yeah. Um. Yeah. There were some there were some short kind of actualities from different parts of the world that were kind of interesting, just for kind of little peeks into history. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, this year, um, we see the Lumieres doing uh, uh, an innovation that an innovation in camera movement, mm, uh, which ha- which has indeed. not been done before, which is the first kind of quote unquote crane shot or the, the first shot of a camera moving up, um, which is 
panorama pendant la ascension de la Tower Eiffel. Oh, <laughs> le Tower Eiffel. I, I did a worse job at that than you would have. But. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a camera that is set up on an elevator going up the Eiffel Tower. Um, but it's a really cool shot, honestly. It is, um, yeah. It's It's got a lot of the scaffolding of the Eiffel Tower, like dark like dark weird angles in the foreground and then you're seeing the the uh you know the the a building in Paris that it's looking down on in the background and so it's got this really interesting movement to it and uh and some really interesting color going on quote unquote color mm. um and also I don't this probably wasn't intentional but the camera was like really skewed to the side and so this may also be the first dutch angle <laughs> oh was it skewed or is that just the angle of the elevator uh i don't know it looked like really off kilter oh um i don't know if i can find it i don't um, imagine it's um i don't imagine it's it was intentional but uh it it looked kind of neat it, it made the shot more more kind of it made the shot less plain, I guess. Mm. There's another one which is, I guess, somewhat similar, and it is a camera moving vertically, but kind of in a different way. This, I'm not entirely sure if it was actually released in 1998. I've seen it credited anywhere from 1897 to 1899. Um, but it is a camera uh, looking straight down at the ground, uh, hooked up to a balloon that is ascending. What? I don't know about that one. Um and that one is pretty pretty wild just in terms of how different it looks from a lot of the other Lumiere movies because it's it's looking straight down as as it the ground kind of falls away. It's pretty shaky. I mean, it's on a balloon, so it's, you know, it's not super smooth. Um but it's pretty cool. Is that Lumiere? Yeah. Oh. I'll have to um, check that out. But it's, yeah, there's a lot of confusion as to when that one actually was filmed or released, I guess. What's it called? Uh, Panorama Prix d'un Ballon capi- Captif. <laughs> I'll be sure to add that to the playlist. <laughs> um, there was another one that the Lumieres did this year, which I thought was quite fun, um, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Which is called the woodcutter, a music lover. Um, the, the the Lumieres are also doing a lot of stuff uh, like Melies, except they're just hiring people to go around and do. They're they're hiring people to go around and do actualities, mm. and they're also filming little sketches, like not much more complicated than the sprinkler sprinkled, um, but it's just filming little locked off sketches. This one is just like weird. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> It's called The Woodcutter, A Music Lover, um, and it is it is a shot of a guy who is playing a trombone that has a saw attached to it, and then using the backwards and forwards motion of playing the trombone to cut wood while he's playing music. That's pretty much all there is to it, but it's so strange. <laughs> it does kind of feel like, like a background joke from Monty Python sketch or something (laughs) yeah it's just such a it's such a weird visual that 
don't know. It's it's like they came up with it one day and they're just like, oh, it would be so funny if it was playing a trombone, but they was using it like a saw. I don't know. I just I, I love to imagine the Lumiere brothers just chuckling to each other about the the silliness of this visual and then just immediately going to putting it on film, like spending a good like 10 hours just getting everything together and making it. Um, I love it. It's uh, yeah, it's very dumb. It's very silly. Um, it's not particularly innovative or important in any way, but it, it is very enjoyable. Yeah. I, I got, I got a hearty chuckle out of it. Um, <laughs> something that is quite innovative that the Lumieres did this year is the life and passion of Jesus Christ predating is... Mel Brooks by, or Mel Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> predating mel gibson by over a hundred (laughs) years oh boy and mel brooks to be fair uh i mean history of the world part one that was probably less than a hundred years after this right oh yeah no well i think that was the 80s Hmm. maybe could have been early 90s but yeah probably not Ah. 98 um is that the full title i thought it was just la passion or yeah, La Passion. That is, I that is say. the full title. Yeah, it's the life and passion of Jesus Christ, but La Passion is like the title card on it. Mm. Um, and this movie is, uh, I, this is not talked about a lot. I kind of had to do some digging to find this one. Mm. Um, but this was a package of thirteen films that depicts like different moments in Jesus's life um, in sort of a sequential fashion. The whole thing is 10 minutes long, and, I mean, if you were to consider these separate films separate scenes, it's like a narrative, you know? Yeah. Um, there, uh, let's see, I wrote down brief sketches of the things that happen in it. Uh, we've got Jesus is Born in the Stable, classic. Uh, there's the second one I could not determine. It's a, some, There's a sphinx and something happens. <laughs> um, then the third one, Jesus, like, heals somebody as an adult, fourth one is a bunch of people giving him offerings um and then the fifth one is the last supper and as as you noted uh uh they're setting up the last supper and then with a substitution cut jesus teleports into the last supper which i don't know i might be showing my my ignorance of uh of christian mythology here but i i didn't think that teleportation was one of jesus's powers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no he had um he had pyrokinesis though um, right he's got water walking he's got he's got healing touch um <laughs> he's got uh magic missile <laughs> <laughs> um the next one is jesus in the woods and getting captured by roman soldiers and then a shot of jesus getting tortured indoors and then jesus uh back in the woods again getting the crown of thorns put on him and then them giving him the cross to carry the next one is him being nailed to the cross and then penultimate is jesus on the cross and there are people praying at his feet and then the last shot is his body getting buried in a casket and people weeping um and then at the very end you see him pop out but then it immediately cuts away wait really 
Yeah, it's like I didn't the, it's that. like the last it's like the last second of it is like it opens up and he sticks his head out and then that's it. So it does just make a, me kind of just a cheeky little Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Still here. Um, it does make me wonder if there's if there was more to it that is not lost. Um, because it seems like a weird spot to end. It's kind of a cliffhanger. Um, well, I think people know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, still a weird spot to cut. Just like yeah, that's all. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. You know, I don't think at the time this was considered a single film. No, yeah, so it was I'm, a package. I'm not going to. What I read, and I don't know how true this is, is that it, it was a package of films that were sold that people could pick a la carte that they wanted to buy and present in their theater. Um, but put all together, it, you know, it tells yeah. a story, you know, mm-hmm. which is, it tells the most coherent story that we've ever seen. Probably, yeah. Um, or at, at least, least the most complex. Yeah. Um, certainly more complex than the sprinkler sprinkled. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know really what you would consider the the start of this but i i think this could maybe be considered the first film serial yeah um as it's a uh you know a series of individual films that tell a broader story and are kind of meant to be watched in sequence yeah um yeah it's uh it's pretty lavish for like a lumiere brothers movie mm-hmm. yeah it's got um, some some painted sets and all that kind of thing the People in costumes yeah like the the forest set in particular was very eye-catching yeah um i don't really know because of the sort of low degraded quality of the film it's hard to kind of tell exactly how it was constructed or anything but it's just these sort of almost um i don't know very kind of like impressionistic trees yeah, like spiky, like thorny trees. Yeah, they almost look like coral. Um, and it's it's very cool looking. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had never heard of this movie. Um, I had never heard of it nor seen it until about I don't know twenty minutes before we started recording when you <laughs> told me about it. Um, but it does seem like one of the more significant movies of this year, or sort of like series of movies. Um. I guess there was some precedent with, with like the the reconstructed actualities of of kind of creating a series of of shorter individual films that were meant to be kind of watched together. Yeah. Um. But never really like a a full kind of staged narrative like this. Yeah, and and that's the thing is that like. They're meant to be able to be watched together, but they're also meant to be able to be watched individually. Mm. Um, these are all just different scenes of Jesus, but because we all know the Jesus story, we know what order they go in, yeah. and you know we know the story that's being told. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting thing that it was it was sort of flexible as either. Um, either just some individual scenes or an entire story. Yeah. It's really interesting reading about one thing you don't really get just from watching these on YouTube is, is the kind of backstory of how these movies were exhibited and shown. Yeah. 
which has been a really interesting thing to read about because there are a lot of differences, a lot of differences and a lot of similarities uh, to now, I guess. Um, hmm. I mean, things of sort of uh, people getting getting uh, upset with with what content is is uh, is being shown in some of the films um, is something that is still very very much a thing that happens. But then, um, poor, poor the hunt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then also, like, um, I mean, until fairly recently kind of like double features or sort of showing multiple movies um, at a time was more the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of thing where, you know, these movies aren't really meant to be watched entirely on their own all the time. Um, you know, cause watching a single, you know, watching just one shot of the elevator going up the, to the top of the Eiffel tower is, it's cool but not necessarily something you would like go out and get dressed up to see, but you see that combined with, you know, eight other movies. Yeah. That's the impression that I get is that a lot of these were done in programs. They were done in packages where people would just put together a show of a lot of these shorts. Mm -hmm. Um, who knows how many and, uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's why the Lumieres were out shooting so much stuff. And it was because they were just like, here's our entire catalog. Pick what you want yeah. for your screening, you know? It also kind of does, I think, explain, um, or sort of like historical context gives some explanation for why so many of these are so similar um, mm-hmm. to the point where a lot of them are outright copies or remakes of each other. Because it's like, you know, if if Edison made a movie and showed it in the u.s it wouldn't necessarily get shown in paris um and so if someone you know if george Melies makes a movie in paris you know it, it's pretty easy for some american to just kind of take that and take it back to the states and show it and be like i made this yeah which um, definitely happened yeah um so yeah and that that's something that isn't necessarily uh, an individual movie that I watched, but it's just something that I've been reading about more hmm. um, that I find really interesting. Something along those lines that I was thinking about was uh, musical accompaniment. Um, hmm. Because I was thinking a lot of these might've been being shown in um, uh, uh, kinescopes uh, or, or being watched in kinescopes, which would is like you know a little podium that you look into so Mm. it's just silent there wouldn't be any uh any musical accompaniment but uh i was reading a little bit about that and you know starting in 1896 uh, there were movie theaters being built um and i think at various in various countries at various times it from the beginning i this was something that i had kind of figured might have taken a while to catch on but there was musical accompaniment from the beginning as soon as these things were being shown in theaters it was a practice that edison uh kind of enforced uh in in his theaters and that original lumiere screening had a single guitarist who was scoring their movies oh wow yeah so uh you know my my thought initially was that a lot of these oh maybe you know, because they're being shown in in, um, in kinetoscopes, they are 
proper to watch silent but a lot of the but pretty much all of them were intended to have music mm. along with them yeah yeah because it's it's been um i mean all the versions on youtube are pretty it's kind of a toss-up whether or not they have any sort of added music to them a lot of them are just silent yeah um and then some of them just have kind of ragtime piano put put over them um some some youtube copyright youtube yeah. music library um <laughs> Or in the case of La Passion, um, I don't know why I'm saying it with a Spanish accent. Uh, La Passion. Um, uh, that on YouTube had more of a kind of a, a somber German opera. Yeah, it was a um, religious-y sounding thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, some of that religious music. <laughs> opera. Um, yeah, no, I, I can't think of a good pivot into the rest of the movies that we watched um there's only a few that i think are really notable to talk about that we haven't mentioned um one is um another film by alice alice guy blanchet or guy blanchet um who is the only notable woman making movies at this time the only um, one just the only one at all yeah until 1906 she's the only woman making oh movies. damn yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, one of her movies, I think there are only three that I was able to find, um, that she directed yeah, same. Yeah. from this year, but, uh, one of them is the turn of the century blind man, um, which stuck out to me and that it is, it is pretty overtly, uh, sort of doing some social commentary, mm-hmm. which isn't really something we've seen much of so far. Other than like children are rascals and and full of mischief, <laughs> um, but yeah, this one has uh, a a beggar who I'm I was based on what I've read is pretending to be blind. The storytelling is a little bit fun is a, kind of hard for me to follow. Yeah, I thought that he was supposed um, to be blind, and then through throughout the course of this film, you're you go like like oh wait, is he actually blind though? <laughs> yeah, twist, he's not really blind. Um, but there's a beggar who's pretending to be blind. He's got a sign and sort of an old hat, um, and a cane and a dog, like a seeing eye dog too. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. And then uh, and then the cops show up and kind of rough him up and tell him to tell him to beat it. Um. And then he he uh, he leaves, and we see um, a wealthy man, I guess just based on his his fancy dress, uh, sits down the same in the same spot that the beggar was sitting, um, and, and then falls immediately asleep. falls asleep. And yeah. Immediately falls asleep. Um, a long day of counting money, um, <laughs> and then the beggar comes back and kind of uh, disguises him as yeah. as a beggar. He put he gives him his sign, gives him his, his old hat, he gives him his his. Uh, his tin i think yeah i think the implication is that the beggar is still running from the cop and has gotten ahead of him and is getting this opportunity to dress up this rich man like like ah, himself interesting. Um, um and so so the, the the this rich man will get arrested instead of him which is what happens the cops show up and then rough up the rich guy seeing that he's he's dressed in in the uniform of a beggar um <laughs> And then the sort of surrounding, I guess, crowd shows up to to vent their displeasure um, at this, while the beggar laughs. <laughs> um, 
the implication being kind of that, uh, you know, the the police are just going around roughing people up. Yeah. Based on Alice. On, Alice said ACAB. Yeah. Uh, that was <laughs> the the first ever um, defund the police film, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, it, it's, it's definitely interesting to see a movie from this early that is sort of like, you know, kind of almost winking to the camera, like, eh, topical, eh, right. you know, uh, <laughs> political, get it? Um, and it, it definitely like watching it with no context, I would not have picked up on any of this mm-hmm. because, uh, it's, it's very degraded. I can't read the sign that he's carrying. It's also... I don't think it's in English. Um, I believe it's in French. Mm, yeah. Um, and it, it's it's mostly just kind of like a chase movie. A guy gets chased off screen. He comes back. He swaps out his clothes, and then yeah, it's a comedy. It's 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 primarily a comedy. Yeah. Um, but I did think it was notable upon reading reading up on it that it, it was meant as a kind of uh, as social commentary. Hmm. Um, which is which is notable did you want to talk about any for other two movies or move on to one of the other odds and ends i mean um there's not really much sort of like new or interesting like they're pretty similar to other stuff that we've seen already yeah there's one kind of uh like magic trick type movie and there's another kind of like war scene yeah um her war scene was neat in that it looked more realistic than the war scenes that we'd seen in some of these recreated stuff like Melies made. Um, yeah. It, seemed... it wasn't as obvious of a set, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, one thing that stuck out to me is that it, it almost fe- felt kind of, you know, we've been talking about how these movies are using their kind of single frame. Um, and this was one of the first that really felt kind of constrained by it. It really felt mm. like almost that, there's stuff happening in it, on on all edges of the frame to the point where it's almost like you wish they'd just widen out or, or move the camera or do something. And it's just sort of like, it feels very kind of uh, locked and constrained by this, this unmoving hmm. single shot. Interesting. Um, there was uh, the first film by Edwin S. Porter this year, who yep. will be important later. <laughs> um tbd it was it's, yeah, it's called the cavalier's dream it was uh it it's one of it's it's a melies alike yeah. that um <laughs> that <laughs> that has some it's like a what is it it's a guy falling asleep and some spooky things happen yeah that's really um, a, a whole genre is the dream genre where someone falls asleep yeah a bunch of spooky <laughs> stuff happens and then they wake up like oh ah, it was all a dream <laughs> Um, all within the span of a minute <laughs> yeah but uh you know edwin s porter getting getting his name in there yep we will we, he's most notable for directing the great train robbery which i guess we'll see uh five years from now <laughs> um, five years from now like five episodes from now yes <laughs> yeah it turns out the great train robbery is a movie that came out in uh 20 2080 <laughs> <laughs> so uh anyway I did, I did have the thought, we can cut this out, but I did have the thought the other day that if we make it to 100 episodes, yeah. it'll be 1995, and we can talk about Batman forever. <laughs> Is it? Oh, yeah, I guess 100 episodes would be 1995. Yeah. 
So hmm. hun- the 100th episode is going to be a doozy. Why do you want to talk about Batman forever? It's just the first movie that stuck out from 1995. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think that just leaves uh, one more. Well, so there are a couple things before we talk about that that I just wanted to touch on really quick. Um, that there, there are two... Uh, there were a couple uh, of uh, film industries that were starting up in a couple different countries. So the first Czech movie was made this year. And I can't, I don't know if these were the first, but they were like one of the first Japanese movies. Um, and they were both horror movies that were released this year. Oh. Two, two J horror movies, which are lost now. Ah. Um, <laughs> but uh, they were like ghostly kind of apparition things. Naturally. Um, uh yeah george albert smith made a movie this year that's that's lost called um oh what was it called something about a ghost um <laughs> he loves ghost movies yeah he he made it he made like a, a a movie called revealing the ghost or something oh, photographing the ghost Fo- photographing the ghost uh and is lost and i was trying to look for these like these uh i was trying to verify that they were lost because uh, mm-hmm. some of them it's a little unclear their status so right. I, was, I was googling this uh i was like george albert smith uh, like this movie 1898 and you look on on the google video search and it has all of these websites that are like these like hokey websites that don't actually have the movie but are just trying to get you on there to give you know show ads at you or give you some spam software or something like that buy free photographing the ghost now yeah um but there was this like polish website that i ended up on that uh it 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 keeps showing up whenever i search for these movies that don't exist anymore (laughs) because it just pulled from it scraped from some database of all movies and decided to make a page for every one to like corral in those search results so i went on that website and I searched for Wax House Baby. <laughs> I knew that's where this was going. Because if it if that wasn't where you were taking this, I would have taken it there. Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with explaining Wax House Baby. But it was an elaborate ruse that someone pulled off on Wikipedia of renaming the 2005 House of Wax movie to wax house baby and creating fake sources for <laughs> that information uh and we can link in the in the show notes to uh the hilarious story of how that happened to a but different the, better podcast yeah <laughs> um but uh be, because it was on wikipedia for so long a lot of film websites thought that wax house baby was a legitimate alternate title to house of wax <laughs> <sighs> so, um, so it's on that weird it is data scraping yeah. polish website yeah of course <laughs> that's amazing um i have two two gripes in my from my research oh. i got two gripes here's here's one of them our new segment chris's gripes <laughs> <laughs> this is just our odds and ends segment so there were a couple of gripes that i had one is that a lot of our research that we're doing is on Letterboxd, 
and we're looking at all we're uh you and me are both logging i think all of the movies that we watch for this on letterboxd which i'm not logging all of them no i'm I logging mean, all of them this this is really the only time i haven't logged every movie i've watched on letterboxd mm-hmm. since i think october of last year um i'm logging a few i'm logging the ones that i have anything notable to really say anything about okay. because if i i don't want to log all of them because i'm watching so many i i i want to log all of them uh and this actually i i had slacked on my letterbox for two straight years and this motivated me last night to go through <laughs> and try and reconstruct all the movies that i watched in the last two years um but the thing my gripe here's my gripe is that on all of these movies uh that these these old 1890s movies that we're watching there are comments and reviews from people and they're so bad <laughs> like like there are people just going like half a star boring whatever and and i'm just like my guy why are you watching these if you if you're gonna be doing this come on yeah why why watching why you're watching these and taking the time maybe they're doing a similar project where they're deciding to watch every movie from every year <laughs> um and are just finding it extremely boring and are somehow continuing to do so um uh, yeah yeah and there are people like making dumb jokes and like that it, it's just a lot of i don't know i i, I just look in this comment and the reviews and i'm very disappointed by everything that i'm seeing there um, are for every of for every like 10 of those though i think there is at least one like really funny review for a movie uh-huh. from from this time i mean there was one for come along do which was the second room slaps <laughs> what one joke which i saw when i saw it the first time i really liked it and then i saw it a bunch of other times these were mostly on youtube comments where people going only 1890s kids remember this you know right which, which is is a funny joke but also uh it's, but also it's, funny, it's on every video <laughs> it's it's funny the first four times you hear it and after that it kind of loses its luster a bit uh and here's my other gripe this only happened once but when i was looking for some of these old movies on youtube I saw one that put an old-timey, like, Windows Movie Maker style filter on top of this old movie. And I was like, why are you doing this? This is so people will know that it's an old movie. Right. What is what is that garbage? I, that ugh. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's so funny. How old are people? Oh, no, we got to make this look old. Never mind the fact it's already black and white and scratched to hell. Do you remember which movie that was? Uh, I don't. I could look through my YouTube history and try and figure it out. <laughs> um, we should put that on the playlist. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, we can uh, we can end off on a pretty pleasing note, which is yeah. this this uh, this heartwarming film from a nice one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's called it's called uh something nice is it something nice or something good wait something good colon negro kiss which i think it's funny that even at the time they were like something good like we need we need a positive (laughs) one we need a nice one yeah it's something good yeah and this was uh only discovered a little pretty recently i think yeah 2015 oh um it was I don't know if it was even really known about until 2015. Hmm. Um, it was discovered uh, by a film archivist. Um, I can see if I can find the name. Uh, Dino Everett, uh, who's a film archivist at USC. 
um, who discovered, I think, in just a, a big box of old film prints. Um, and and being a film archivist, uh, restored it and and you know sort of did some research on it and uh, and released it. Yeah, and it is as the name sounds. It's um, it's two uh, black people in 1898, uh, just being very affectionate and and kissing. Yeah, um, I think based on the comments I, uh, that this was in, if Beale Street could talk for a second. Oh, really? Um, let me verify that. I don't doubt it. Oh, it's um Barry Jenkins. Uh, was saw it uh, uh, posted on Twitter that he thought it was it was super beautiful and the the video of it on YouTube is using the score from from If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's uh, as far as I know, or as far as any as any surviving films films go, it's the earliest surviving depiction of um African American people kissing. Um. Yeah, and in this in this case, unlike a lot of other movies of black people um, from this time, it doesn't seem to be like mocking them or making it, it's it seems to be empathetic toward them in its portrayal. It's really nice and really affectionate, and yeah, like a like an almost candid moment uh, captured on film. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing about how it it is sort of like it kind of stands apart from other um, films in this time of <laughs> depicting black people in a, in a positive way that in it, that is not sort of mocking or, um, or sort of meant in a comedic way. Yeah. In, in the most awful way possible um, is based on what I've read. It was probably intended that way. Hmm. Um, it was most likely intended when it was shown to be this sort of, not necessarily mockery, but as it was intended kind of like a gawking thing. Exactly. Um, but what's really nice about it is that, that none of that comes through watching it now. Yeah. Um, there's a, what is it? There's a quote from, Oh, from, uh, from Dino Everett, uh, the guy who restored it. Um, it's hard not to love this film. Uh, race makes it important, but it's joyful to begin with. It's important not because it's from a famous director or because it features two stars. It's important because of what it shows about life 120 years ago. There are so many negative stereotypes. This counters it with wonderful imagery, oh. which I think is says it better than I could say. Like that that quote just says everything that um, I feel like can and should be said about this. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that'll be it for this week, this year. Um, so I'll do the little calls to action at the end here is that, uh, if you're not subscribed already, uh, go for it, you know, please like, and subscribe, please like comment and subscribe to the extent that they're possible. Um, please clap. (laughs) Oh, poor Jeb. Um, Again, I mean, I think it's the third time that I'm saying it, but we have a YouTube page, and I am uh, making a playlist for each uh, for each episode, and we're, we've got a playlist of all the movies discussed on the episode. 
uh, and so you can watch along, and uh, it should be pretty nice. Oh, and in the episode description, it's, it has links to all of the movies that we talk about and the playlist as well. So you can find it right there. Um, and we we made, we made it easy for you. Yeah, and we got a Twitter. We got all sorts of stuff. <laughs> uh, so uh, with that being said, I guess. Glenn's just dying over here. <laughs> we got we got all the stuff. We got, we got Twitter, all the stuff. We got YouTube, you know. I just I just went through every social media website and made an alternate identity for myself uh, as a <laughs> podcast with a King Kong logo. Um. Oh uh, yeah. Well, with that being said, uh, thanks for listening uh, to this possibly longest episode so far. And oh boy, yeah. Uh, Dang. And we will see you next week. Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right by Santa Claus Lane.